Good evening. Can I give you a very warm welcome to Crescent Church on a beautiful sunny evening after a terrible day of rain. It's great to come together and worship the Lord, our loving Heavenly Father. As we turn to you this Sunday evening, we give you thanks that you indeed abide with each one of us. Through the ups and downs, the tosses and turns of life, we know that we can cling to the love, the everlasting love of Jesus Christ and the truth of his sacrifice on the cross where he died and took away our sins. For that, we are eternally grateful. Father, Lord, as we come together and as Jim comes to speak to us, just still us from the busyness of life, still our hearts so they can listen to the words that you have laid on Jim to share with us this evening. And may those words actually talk into our hearts and change our lives and change our appreciation of you, dear loving God. Father, at this time, we think of our church family. We ask you to draw near to those who are going through mourning, who've lost a loved one and are missing them dreadfully. Father, we pray that your arms of comfort would surround them and that they would know your peace. We pray for those who are unwell at this time or going through treatments and just pray that you would be with them and their families. Pray that you would strengthen them and pray for healing if it is your will. And Father, we pray for the children of this church. As we come up to community week, we pray that as we proclaim the gospel into the local area, that your name would be glorified. And as your message goes out, it would be returned with abundant blessing and people would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, now just be with us in this time of reflection, of time of prayer, time of praise, and a time of teaching. We come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This evening, our speaker is Jim Crooks, and he'll be continuing our series, The God Who Is Good Is God Is Constant. Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, it's lovely to be with you. So as George said, we're in the middle of this little series on the character of God. And at the beginning of the series, a few weeks ago, I made the point that your understanding of God's character has a major impact on your mental health. And the relationship between this teaching series and mental health comes into its sharpest focus tonight. Because this evening, we're going to consider the idea that God is constant. Many years ago, I read about some research that had been done with secondary school children. The researchers wanted to find out the characteristics of the pupil's most favorite teacher. They admitted that they thought they knew what the answer would be. The kids would love the light-hearted, friendly teacher who was quick with a joke and who didn't take homework too seriously. But when they analyzed their results, a surprising conclusion emerged. The quality that mattered most to pupils was constancy. A teacher who was usually friendly and lighthearted, but who on a bad day could snarl at the class, the class with bad-tempered rage, a teacher like that was the least liked because the children didn't know which teacher would turn up on a particular day. Would it be the jokey good times Mr. Cooper or a nasty hungover Mr. Cooper? I do hope there's nobody here called Cooper, but anyway. Constancy is such an important virtue in human relationships. It was even mentioned in the opening psalm that George read to us. The patriarch uh, Jacob had 12 sons and his eldest son was called Reuben. 
And Reuben was capable of real nobility at times. He saved his youngest brother Joseph from being murdered. But he had no consistency of character. And so Jacob, on his deathbed, predicts that Reuben, even though he was the firstborn, would be set aside. Why? Well, says the old man, Reuben was as unstable as water. Inconsistent, unstable people make terrible leaders. That's why the tribe of Reuben never produced a single king, judge, or prophet. Reuben was a bit like our school teacher, Mr. Cooper, unstable as water. No one can ever be quite sure which person will turn up. So everyone has to walk on eggshells until we work out whether it's Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde sitting in the staff room. And I hope you can see the obvious link between our topic for tonight and the subject of mental health. Is God constant or unstable as water? When we're in trouble or when we've messed up, are we praying to Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? Quite a number of Christians I know are nervous around God. They know that often he is loving and kind and forgiving, but then they read about his anger and his wrath, and they wonder which God will turn up to listen to their prayers. And believers like that are paralyzed in their ability to develop, to develop a trusting relationship with God. So I hope that this study will convince you that God is indeed constant. Now, it will have been obvious to you that our focus tonight will be uh, pastoral. But we do have to consider a little bit of deep theology uh, before we get to the pastoral stuff. And so in this talk, I'm going to propose to ask two questions. And the first one is, can God change? And then we'll ask, is God constant? A few minutes ago, we sang that grand hymn, Abide With Me. I have told George repeatedly that it must be sung at my funeral. And it contains these magnificent lines. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. That lyric contains a deeply scriptural truth. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the very last book of the Old Testament, the prophecy of Malachi. We're just going to read a single verse. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Just go to Matthew and turn left. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. The prophet says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I, the Lord, do not change. Well, that's the question settled, you might think. God does not change. Now, as we'll see, your instinctive answer is correct. But we need to define our terms with great care. Uh, I'm going to suggest, as that strange diagram on the screen shows, that there is a balanced answer. And heresy awaits us on either side of that carefully balanced and defined answer. One heresy comes from saying that God does change. That's the challenge from so-called process theology and open theism. So to give you a really, really crude and unfair summary of process theology, do this. Try applying the process of evolution to God himself. Well, that's just made your heads melt, hasn't it? So think about the theory of evolution for a moment. Evolutionists say that the universe began as a huge set of possibilities, but it's moving more and more to actual concrete things. So as history unfolds, there is less and less of it of it could have been this, and there's more and more of it's now that. So perhaps 10 million years ago, I have no idea, uh, human beings might have uh, potentially had three arms, but that potential has been shut down because of the way evolution occurred, according to the theory. Now, the process theologian comes along and says, aha, 
It's not just the universe that's evolving. God himself is on a journey from being a vast collection of conceptual possibilities and as he, as he engages with us, he's becoming more and more concrete all the time. A long time ago, he could have been this or that, but now he is this. Now, that's straightforward heresy, of course. God does not mature or develop potential within himself. The whole scheme of creation and redemption is for our development, not his. As Malachi's prophecy states, I, the Lord, do not change. But this is where we need to be really careful. There's a heresy on the other side of the truth about God's constancy. And as ever, it comes from Greek philosophy. Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle believed in the absolute changelessness of God in every respect. Aristotle called his God the unmoved mover. His concept of God was, if you like, frozen, immobile. The only way Aristotle's God could change anything in creation was by being an object of desire. I mean, think of a beautiful statue for a moment. It doesn't interact with us. It's as if it's dead to us. But its beauty might move us uh, to act in a certain particular way. So the heresy on this side is the God of the Greeks. And they say that God is an utterly changeless entity. He is frozen into immobility. So God is portrayed by the Greeks as a being who cannot relate to anything outside of himself. Otherwise, his perfection would be smudged. Now, that leads to some really weird conclusions. Tell me, do you think God knows what time it is now? Uh, I'm too short-sighted to read the clock, so let's say it's seven, coming up to 7.15. Now, we'll wait a few seconds, and now, for the sake of argument, it is 7.15. Now, the Greeks would say that God's knowledge of the present world would add to his knowledge and that would mean that before 715, his knowledge would have been less than perfect. But they won't allow. Therefore, they say God does not know what time is. Now, that summary was deeply unfair, but I'm just trying to introduce you to the problem of mixing Greek philosophy up with Christian thought. I'll take a more serious example. Does God know how it feels to suffer? Well, of course he does, you say. Think of Christ suffering on the cross. But the Greeks will not allow that because God is seen to be gaining knowledge. And far too many Christian theologians have gone along with all that Greek stuff and have said that Jesus only suffered in his human nature. So the answer here is not to use Aristotle and the Greeks as your foundation for Christian theology, but to use men like Isaiah and Moses and Jeremiah. The Old Testament conception of God is very different from what I've just explained to you. The God of the Bible is living and dynamic. He acts and reacts in relationship with his creatures. He's not so aloof that it's as if we are dead to him. And he's no statue or mannequin who merely acts as an object of desire. Yes, God is infinite and we are finite, but both you and God are personal. You're both relational. So God can undergo relational change without affecting the perfection of his character and being. Now, I'm conscious that the past two minutes might have caused some of you to lose the will to live. So I'm sorry about that. But young adults get exposed to these sorts of heresies in all sorts of ways. So let's now return with a sigh of relief to the scriptural answer to the question I posed at the start. Can God change? No, says the Bible, but in the following carefully qualified way. You will see four points on the screen. First, 
God's life does not change. God's life is eternal. So it doesn't mature or develop. God does not evolve. As Hebrews 13 puts it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Secondly, God's character doesn't change. His moral qualities, his mercy and justice and patience, these qualities are essential to him and they do not change. God is not like Mr. Cooper. He is utterly consistent. The Apostle James says, I love this verse, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. When I finish, we're going to sing that grand hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And it contains the line, There is no shadow of turning with thee. And it is vital that we uphold that truth, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us feel. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. We must never say, Yes, I know God did all sorts of difficult things in the Old Testament, but He has really mellowed, you know. God's character does not change. Thirdly, God's truth does not change. In 2 Timothy, Paul is contrasting the truth of God's word with false teaching. And he describes God's word like this. God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And the Apostle Peter has the same idea when he says in chapter 1 of his epistle that the word of the Lord endures forever. And lastly, God's purposes never change. Psalm 33 verse 11 The plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. And then think of those beautiful verses in Hebrews 6. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So when we say that God doesn't change, we mean that his life doesn't change, his character doesn't change, his truth doesn't change, and his purposes don't change. But because God is living and dynamic and creative and relational, he does undergo relational change that in no way affects the perfection of his other attributes. When God created the heavens and the earth, he underwent relational change. At the moment of Genesis 1 verse 1, God stood in relation to his creation in a new way. Or think of that moment when the second person of the Trinity became a man. Now we need to understand what was going on on that first Christmas when Christ was born. The incarnation never involves subtraction. God lost nothing of himself when he became a man. He didn't shrink down into ignorance and finitude. God added human nature to himself. But that involved relational change. He now stood in relationship to human nature in a way that he had not done before. At one point, God the Son did not have a human nature, but now he does. In the language of C.S. Lewis, God walked a path he had not walked before. And that involved a change in relationship. But relational change is a very different thing from a change in God's life, his character, his truth, or his purposes. Now, I feel the need to apologize once again for dragging you through all that, but it answers a lot of questions Christians have about practical things, about God's providence, or about prayer. We often read bits of scripture that seem to give the impression that God changes his mind. 
Well, he doesn't in the sense that I do when I pat my pockets as I walk out to the car and realize that I have left my wallet on the kitchen table. God is never surprised by events. And he doesn't make spur-of-the-moment decisions. But he chooses to respond to how his creatures act. And with divine foreknowledge, God knew that the people of Nineveh, for example, would repent when they heard Jonah's preaching. He had already built that pathway into his plan. But the text says that God changed his mind. In fact, it says that God repented of his plan to destroy the city. And that's a great example of how a turn of events can look to us as a change of God's mind, but in fact, it is a pre-planned pivot to a different strand in the overall scheme. And that explanation helps us understand prayer. Our prayers do, in fact, alter the course of history. They trigger the unfolding of a specific pathway through history that God has already set up because he foreknew that you would pray. But your prayer had a real effect on history because God responds to our prayers in the light of his omniscience. Now, if we're too lazy or too sinful to pray, God would have foreknown that, and so our prayerlessness would have triggered a different, perhaps more painful, pathway through history. Thank you for your patience on that. Let's now turn to the pastoral implications of God's constancy. Is God constant? The Bible gives an emphatic, unambiguous yes to that question. And I think two really practical and helpful truths flow out from the constancy of God. First, your relationship with God is secure. And secondly, your life is secure. So first, your relationship with God is secure. I have only ever once got into a spat on social media once in my life. It was a torrid experience. A young man I knew as a student at Queen's decided to take a year out in California. He attended the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, which sounds like a sort of Christian Hogwarts, but it is an actual thing. And anyway, one day he, he posted the following sentence. Today, I declare that God is in a good mood. Now, I should have just let it slide. But in a well-meaning attempt to protect the guy from error, I gently suggested in a comment that God is not, in fact, moody. I then quoted James 1.17 that we looked at earlier. God is the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Well, that comment triggered a tsunami of angry Christian trolls who had clearly worked out that I was not a pupil at the School of Supernatural Ministries. I was so traumatized by the experience that I deleted my entire history and have been struck dumb ever since. Now, I still use social media, but I now lurk like an observant ghost. Turn with me to Exodus 3 for, in a minute, for, for now. Exodus chapter 3. In a minute, I want to read verses 13 to 15. Well, let me first set the scene. This text records the story of Moses and the burning bush. Moses is a disillusioned man. We meet him in chapter 3. The flaming passion that had fired him as a young man had died down. He had made a terrible mistake, and so he had, to, he had given up on his calling. And so we find him herding a flock of sheep around the backside of a desert. The enthusiasm and the fire of his youth had died away, leaving only a jaded, disillusioned man. So let me just pause there for a moment. Perhaps in your past, there has been a similar change of mood. 
and the root cause is a terrible mistake that lies in your past. Something that you feel has ruined your chances of serving God. It's left you feeling jaded and disillusioned. Well, that was exactly how Moses felt at the start of this chapter. The spiritual ambition he had felt in his youth had drained away because of a bad mistake. But then Moses sees a bush burning in the desert. Well, there's nothing surprising about that. He had probably seen hundreds of them burn in the heat of the Middle Eastern sun. And he knew how it would go. There would be bright flames for a while. But then they would die away, leaving only some smoldering ash. That was the way life worked. And that sort of normal bushfire is a picture of the way we think about life. Our mood can change as the years go by. Sometimes we burn bright, provided we're fueled by an emotional high. Other times we feel like nothing more than some warm ash. And we can all go through changes like that. Feelings of love that once burned brightly can grow cold. Or we discover that we're married to a fickle person who is incapable of steadfast love. And so our lives feel like a half-finished novel, an abandoned project that now lies forgotten. But the story didn't go as Moses expected. He noticed that the flame in this bush did not die away. It kept burning on and on and on it burned. And if you notice from the text, it was the unchanging, continual burning which aroused his curiosity. And it's that visual metaphor which helps us understand the mysterious statements we're now going to read in the climax of the chapter in verses 13 through 15. And these words should make the hairs on the back of our necks stand up. Verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, What is his name? And what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am that I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The fire of Exodus 3 teaches us that God is constant. That's the sense in which we can understand the term I am that I am. You see, we are fickle, inconsistent creatures. Sometimes we act in a capricious, unpredictable way, but God is unchanging. He's constant. He's never arbitrary. And that answers the deepest question of all, the question about the stability and the state of our relationship with God. Let me ask you, did, 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 did God love you yesterday? Then he will love you today. Did God give you good gifts in the past? Then he will give you good gifts in the future. I sometimes sit beside students who are afraid that God has given up on them. They fear that because of failure, they have blown their relationship with God. They fear that God could not really love them anymore. Well, God says, I am that I am. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His steadfast loyalty to you will never waver. Perhaps you thought you had to earn God's love by performing well, and then you discovered you're incapable of performing well. Like that Old Testament man, Reuben, you find out that you're as unstable as water. Well, listen to me carefully now. God loves you because that is who God is. You can rest on something much more solid and eternal than your own attempt at stability. You can rest on the character of the one who says, I am that I am. So maybe 
in these moments, God speaks into some tortured soul and says, I shall remain loyal to you. I gave Christ for you and I shall go on loving you forever and ever. I will not grow tired of you. I won't discard you like a broken toy. I loved you yesterday and I love you today. I do not change. So your relationship with God is secure. But secondly, your life is secure. Turn with me to Psalm 102. Psalm 102, and we'll read verses 25 to 27. May I want to go back a slide straight? In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. There are few, few more majestic sights in this world than the Rocky Mountains, or perhaps you've been to Switzerland and have stared up at the Alps. And I sometimes ask myself, why do those majestic mountains evoke such feelings of awe within me? And I think it's because they're so ancient and unmoving. They have stood for millennia, while we humans have scampered around their feet like little ants. You know, humanity's great battles, its empires are made to feel insignificant. But then we can lift our eyes even higher and stare up at the billions of stars that move silently through space. Our very bodies are made from the dust of stars. In the days of sailing ships, men would plot their course by working out their relationship to the pole star. It was the great constant that made sense in the midst of a restless ocean. And yet, says the psalmist, these awe-inspiring features of creation will one day perish. They will wear out like a garment to be discarded and replaced. And that is a terrifying thought for the atheist because it shows him his utter insignificance. But I'm sure you notice those three simple words that the psalmist places in the poem. But you remain. I love that thought. The psalmist says to God, but you remain. One day our old bodies will wear out like a garment. Even the molecules that make us up, the dust of stars, will themselves perish. So what security do we really have? For most of our lives, we <clears throat> really think that the foundation of our existence is our body, especially our brains. But what happens when the brain starts to wear out? A tumor is discovered, or dementia starts to destroy our neural pathways. We'll whisper those three little words into your soul as you pray to God, but you remain. Your being is rooted in Christ, you're rooted in something much more durable than the cells of your brain or the stability of the earth's crust. God's constancy is untroubled by physical death. Listen to the Lord Jesus speak in John 10. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So maybe your old body is breaking down, but your life is secure. 
Did you notice the double grip in the text that I read? We are held in the hand of the Savior, but clasped around that hand is the hand of the Father. So your life is secure. I said at the start that God's constancy is an essential element in a believer's mental health. The young people in this room live in a culture that is liquid, one that delights in constant flux and change. There is no pole star in this culture, no such thing as north or south, just the whims of fashion. It is a culture that is as unstable as water. Is it any wonder that so many young minds are like a roiling sea, turbulent and never at rest? Well, steer your frail little craft back into the harbor of God's truth and step out onto solid ground. Feel the sheer solidity of God's constancy beneath your feet as you walk. Walk confidently on the ground of God's unchanging life, his unchanging character, his unchanging truth, his unchanging purposes. And feel the security of knowing that your relationship with God is unbreakable and that your life rests in something more secure than your physical body. I want to leave you with perhaps my favorite preacher story. Uh, I've told it to you before, but I make no apology. It's about an art competition. And the contestants were told to paint a piece that depicted the subject of peace. And the judges awarded second prize to this painting of some you know, serene, tranquil landscape, hardly a breath stirred. <coughs> Nothing disturbed the hazy sunshine that lit up the scene. But they awarded first prize to a very different piece. And this painting was of a raging sea, a storm. Huge waves battered a cliff face, causing plumes of spray to fill the air. The skies overhead were dark and foreboding. And at first sight, the painting seemed to have nothing to do with peace. But if you look closely, in the very center of the picture, there was a little gull asleep in its nest, a nest that had been built snugly into a cleft in the rock of the cliff face. The storms were raging all around this little bird, but was it, it was at peace because it was hid in the rock. I hope you sleep well tonight. As your head hits the pillow, think of that little gull asleep in a cleft in the rock. Hear the Lord Jesus say, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Know that you aren't sailing alone in this culture's restless sea. You aren't at the mercy of capricious gods or mindless fate. You can rest on the constancy of the triune God. We may be as unstable as water, but as Malachi's prophecy said, I, the Lord, do not change. Our Father in heaven, we're so conscious of having to live in a culture which has no pole star, which sends children and young people, casts them adrift into a sea of relativism, and tells them to navigate with nothing but the convictions that come from their own feelings. And so we bless you, Father, for this truth we have considered tonight, that there is a pole star. There is something unmovable and unchangeable and constant. Then it is your life, your character, your truth, and your purposes. And we thank you for the security that that brings into our lives, knowing that our relationship with you 
He's unbreakable. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. And we thank you that our lives are secure because we are rooted in Christ and the foundation of our being is no longer in our biology. And so we thank you, Father, for these truths and we pray for any in this room or listening online who perhaps have experienced sudden chaos come into their lives, a relationship that they leaned on has been shown to be fickle and false. And they feel alone with nowhere to turn or some terrible sickness has come upon them. Pray, Lord, that they would whisper into their own souls just now, but you remain. We thank you for that insight into your constancy. And so we pray that it would over time as we mull over these things that it would form a solid foundation at the root of our being so that we could walk confidently uh, in, in a world that is difficult and at times hostile. We ask now, Lord, that you part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name. Amen.